In the 12th season of this podcast, we're going to get somewhat unordinary and take a turn towards the sacred and the shining ones. In other words, what we're going to do is to take a look at five different gods. Suffice it to say, these are beings with powers a little greater than ours. And if we let them, they're beings that'll take us to new levels of consciousness beyond the profane concerns of everyday life. So, let's cross that domestic threshold, shall we? And make our way towards that sanctified dimension. So, here we go. Everyone bring out your cups. It's time to pour your libations to those exalted and divine ones, without which the commonplace might rule. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode three, the incomparable master of mind, the Buddha. last week. It was just a thought, but does Jesus belong on such a pluralistic list of gods unless he's being flanked by the Father on one side and the Holy Ghost on the other? Fast forward a week, now we've got a new entry in a season on gods, leave it to you to plunk down at a distinctly not God right in the middle. I'm just relieved that you didn't take uh, take a certain, I don't know, London-based graffiti of the 1960s and go with uh, good old Clapton is God, you know, Eric Clapton. His supposed deification apparently had nothing to do with his uh, public racist rantings or his assuredly well-researched and reasoned take against vaccines. No, I think it was supposedly for his guitar playing. As a complete hack of a guitar player myself, I won't criticize Eric, but I'll gladly leave it to Sonny Boy Williamson II, I think. Referring to the English blues scene, he said, those British boys want to play the blues real bad, and they do. So all things considered, I'll count my blessings that if we're playing fast and loose with what constitutes a god, we could have done far worse than today's focus. Buddha. Yeah, well, uh, you're right. Buddha's no god. But at the same time, and maybe more importantly, Eric Clapton is definitely no Buddha. No, but it's true. I mean, Buddha technically shouldn't be considered in this 12th season. After all, he's just a a simple human being like all of us, except for that uh, extra dash of enlightenment, that is. Anyway, so before we get going, maybe a, a brief bio might help. So in case you didn't know, Buddha didn't start off as Buddha. No, his his real name was Siddhartha Gautama. And his story went like this. He grew up in a a wealthy and overprotective family. Despite being sheltered and pampered, though, over time he came to realize just how much suffering there was in the real world. So he eventually renounced his aristocratic way of life and his family in order to try to solve the problem of universal suffering. After years of asceticism and meditation, he finally achieved enlightenment. 
That is, he found the answer to the questions of suffering that he'd been asking. It's at that point that Siddhartha became the Buddha. Because, well, Buddha just means the enlightened or awakened one. Buddha then spent the remainder of his life, which was about 45 years, roaming across northeastern India, teaching others what he discovered, in an effort to lead them along the path of enlightenment. His teachings eventually became the basis of the Buddhist religion. Uh, Quite a while ago, uh, quite a few episodes ago, I'm not entirely sure... I teased that I was going to go see the new Sopranos movie, uh, The Many Saints of Newark. So I'm sure, dear listeners, you've all been keenly anticipating, just waiting with bated breath for my review. Here it is. It was meh. It was all right. Best thing the movie did was make me revisit the show. Uh, Decidedly not meh. A well above all right show. It was peppered with many religious overtones throughout, the most obvious being Catholic ones. But some Buddhism was dropped in every once in a while, like a really strange scene. Uh, It was a Martin Scorsese cameo, and Christopher saw him, and just absurdly he shouted out, Kundun! I liked it! Another example, one of Tony's girlfriends, uh, she dabbled in, you know, more Eastern thoughts. But one scene really jumped out. Tony's in the hospital. He's watching a boxing match with a group of other patients. One's a rapper, but another is a rocket scientist, literally, I think. But he, the rocket scientist, he talked about, from a physics point of view, that the two boxers are not separate entities. Nothing is separate. The shapes we see are separate only in our consciousness. I've always had a hard time wrapping my mind around those scientific thoughts, and I've had an equally hard time with the same topic from a spiritual point of view. Like, say, the Buddha saying there is no such thing as self. How many times have you watched The Sopranos now? This is getting to be an obsession, I think. But you know what? I mean, to be fair, the boxing reference is not a bad one, actually. I could see how Buddha might get along with that rocket scientist. But let's get to your more specific point about this idea of there not being a self, which is something that Buddha claims. Okay, so now, needless to say, most of us think that there's this this self that we take to be at the core of our being, right? We think it's the thing that continues as the same entity throughout our lifetime. And we think that it's the, the agent of our actions, the, the possessor of our body and mind, and the thing that the word I refers to. Well, Buddha denies all of this. First of all, it's not true, he thinks, that anything, let alone human beings, retain their identity over time. I mean, things might retain their similarity, yeah, but not their strict identity. And actually, that's pretty easy to understand. I mean, think about it. Even though there might be some things about me in my past and me now that are the same, I'm, I'm not identical to the 10-year-old kid I used to be. Most obviously, of course, I'm older. In other words, because any two stages of the same continuum are necessarily going to be of different ages, they just won't share all the same properties. And so, well, they're not identical. Now, you might argue that, hey, who cares? 
The fact is, is that we treat each other as literally the same despite changes over time. Well, that's true. But Buddha would just point out to us that that's a confusion of identity with similarity and with causal continuity and not an indication of an actual underlying reality that we're calling the self. Okay, so, so much for identity across time. But what about my identity right now, in this moment, as I'm speaking into this mic? Surely there's, there's something that's me right now, and that me is some sort of, I don't know, some sort of single self-contained thing. But again, no, says the Buddha. In reality, what I think is a single unified self is really just a, an aggregation of interrelated psychological and physical processes which is in turn causally connected to earlier and then succeeding aggregations. In other words, what I am is just a series or a stream of perceptions, feelings, and physical parts. And there's just nothing else besides this. There's no self under all of it. Now, this is difficult to grasp because we're so used to thinking, again, that there's some entity or subject behind everything. That's to say, there's something that possesses a body, something that possesses a mind, and something which has experiences. But in reality, we don't have or own anything. No, in effect, we are our bodies. We are our minds. And we are our experiences. That there's something outside of this is just a a fiction that we and others invent. Actually, you know what? It's interesting. There are several points of comparison between this Buddhist view and the 18th century philosopher David Hume's view, which is sometimes referred to as the bundle theory. And basically what Hume says there is that whenever he tries to um, introspect and enter into what he calls his self, the only thing he stumbles upon are are bundles of perceptions and sensations. Like, for instance, heat or cold, or pain or pleasure. But here's the thing. Never in any of this does he ever catch himself. Nowhere in, as he calls it, this um, theater of the mind that he's watching, nowhere in this successive stream of perceptions, does he ever catch sight of some fixed self or some stable identity. In other words, what he concludes is that we're nothing over and above the bundle of perceptions that we have. Okay, but as similar as Buddha and Hume are on this point, they, they really differ greatly in their aims and responses to this, to this discovery of no self. You see, for Hume, all he was trying to do was to provide a, a scientific account of the mind. And when he discovered that there was no continuous or stable self, it horrified him because, well, he thought it was isolating and that it jeopardized human warmth and relationships. Well, for Buddha, it was the exact opposite. For Buddha, this recognition of no self is absolutely essential to the achievement of nothing less than our very well-being and the well-being of others. Or, To put it another way, that we take ourselves to have a self is the root of all of our psychological problems and ills. Okay, so how so though? 
what's the, the explanation here? Well, the idea is basically something like this. That to believe that we have a self creates a distorted view of reality. One which makes it seem like we're at the center of the universe and that everything around us is an object to be used or consumed for our convenience. In other words, because we identify ourselves with our egos, we never really see things as they are themselves. And the reason for this is that our vision of the world is colored by our desires. Our view of the world is therefore distorted by self-interest and, and greed. And this all issues from this illusion of the self. Now, why is this so bad for us? Well, because, because desire inevitably leads, in one way or another, to fear, ill will, conflict, anger, frustration, and ultimately to general unhappiness. So instead, we should drop this fictional self. We should decenter ourselves and accept that life and everything in it is changing and impermanent. And what's more, if we do this, if we um, release ourselves from this desiring and, and grasping nature of our, of our daily lives, and so from the fears and frustrations associated with clinging to an illusional self, we'll end up more open to and more compassionate for others. I mean, it's pretty obvious that this would be the case, right? With no self, and so free from the constant struggle to assert our importance over others, we will open up a space for the reception of the pain of others that's not in any way mediated by our own concerns. Now this is selfless empathy. It's genuine compassion. As a, as a youth of the 90s, it felt like Buddhism really entered into the public consciousness in a real kind of mainstream way. At every large outdoor festival type concert, there would be dozens upon dozens of, I don't know how to describe it, lightly skimmed Buddhism for dummies that had sprung to life all of them congregating in an impromptu, arrhythmic drum circle or hacky sack game. The quintessential band of that era, Nirvana, had a Buddhist-inspired name change from previous choices, uh, one of them being the completely disgusting fecal matter. The name change probably owed more to Nirvana sounding cool, more than the band themselves entering uh, a level of enlightenment. But I shouldn't judge. Uh, I should have saved that for the Christ episode, but stays the same. I shouldn't judge. I'm sure there are plenty of fine examples of Western thought, quote unquote, being inspired, changed, transformed by the teachings of the Buddha in deep, meaningful ways. So tossing aside my painfully narrow view of the 90s, I'd be willing to wager it might have had a deeper impact on Certain people, maybe 19th century philosophers, for example. I'm, uh, I'm surprised you had the courage to bring up Hacky Sack. I mean, I don't think I ever saw anyone worse at that than you in my entire life. Other than you trying to play basketball, it was just the most awful thing to watch. But yeah, you know, aside from uh, the band Nirvana, there were some other important figures who were influenced by Buddhism. And here I'm thinking primarily of the 19th century German philosopher, Schopenhauer. 
Actually, you know, I just said influenced. But, you know, it's interesting. Apparently, much of Schopenhauer's philosophical outlook, especially his ethical one, supported certain Eastern and Buddhist doctrines, but was never directly influenced by them. That's to say, even though he didn't know them at the time, much of what he was writing ended up having close correspondences to Buddhist doctrine, which is something that he was really quite happy about later when he discovered this, you know, that wise men from the East had confirmed his ideas. Anyway, okay, so for Schopenhauer, what happened was that a lot of his philosophy grew out of his own personal life. Um, the death of his father when he was young, a difficult mother, and traveling around the world when he was a child being exposed to unhappiness and suffering. All of this formed in him an extremely pessimistic view of the world. I mean, he even said that the world was ultimately just a veil of tears. Actually, you know, in this way, he was somewhat like Siddhartha, right? Who, in his youth, of course, also experienced suffering and death, something which, of course, would prove to be foundational for his later outlook. But, as I said earlier, it's not just Schopenhauer's and the Buddha's early life experiences that are similar. It's also their overall philosophical positions. I mean, Let's take a brief look at this, because it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Okay, so first of all, for Buddha, the first of the Four Noble Truths, as most people know, is that life is suffering. Well, Schopenhauer basically said the same thing, that human existence is a state of unceasing suffering. Okay, well, Buddha's second and third Noble Truth is that the cause of suffering is desire. And that if we ceased desiring, which is to say, if we achieved nirvana, we'd stop suffering. Well, Schopenhauer too believed that suffering is rooted in something that he called the will to life, which for him was something like, like a blind desire to reproduce, to live, to conquer, and to accumulate. And it was a force that constituted the true underlying nature of the universe. In other words, it's what drives the universe, and it's what drives us. Well, for Schopenhauer, the point here is that this will to life allows us no respite from desire and from need, and so from suffering. Now, I mean, we might get a momentary release from dissatisfaction when we uh, reproduce or, or acquire something. But soon after, another desire will get back in the driving seat of our consciousness, and back to suffering we go. Okay, now, but unlike Buddha, who believed that it was possible to learn to cease desiring and so overcome suffering by following what he called the Eightfold Path, which involves, among other things, disciplined meditation, Schopenhauer wasn't quite as hopeful about our prospects for well-being or peace of mind. Now, it's true that he did think that we could reduce our suffering in a few ways. Namely, we could um, contemplate works of art something he believed took us away from our everyday practical concerns, and so from willing or desiring altogether. Or, he says, we could practice um, asceticism. That's to say, live like a monk, practicing non-attachment to everything. But here's the thing. For Schopenhauer, these are both ultimately temporary or ephemeral forms of respite or escape from the will. 
That's to say, no matter how hard we might try, the will to life will, from time to time, and eventually, assert itself and torment us once again. So, the bottom line is that for Schopenhauer, the will to life must be completely destroyed or denied if it's suffering that we want to eliminate. But that just means, well, extinction itself. And, well, not surprisingly maybe, that's why Schopenhauer seems to suggest that death by starvation is acceptable and even admirable, as of course it means the absolute, complete renunciation of the will. The end of the storm-tossed soul, to borrow from Epicurus. Okay, since I mentioned Schopenhauer here, I can't really end without also saying something about Nietzsche and his attitude towards Buddhism. So, I'll make this brief and to the point. Here it is. Unlike Schopenhauer, whom um, Nietzsche greatly admired, he didn't follow him in his admiration for Buddhism. No, according to Nietzsche, Buddhism was, well, it was an enemy of the body and of life. It was a religion for those not mature and strong enough to handle life's struggles. It was for those, as he says, that feel pain too easily. Basically, for him, Buddhism was essentially nihilistic, or what amounts to the same thing. It was a withdrawal from existence. Now, I have to be honest. I'm not sure Nietzsche was very knowledgeable about Buddhism. I mean, I just don't think that it's completely right to say that to live in a Buddhist manner is to live in a kind of withdrawal from existence. As I mentioned earlier, to adopt a, a decentered view, one where you try to dissolve your ego and free yourself from your petty concerns, from your past, and from the, the future expectations associated with all of this, you really do open up an absolutely pure mode of engagement with the world in front of you in each and every moment. So it seems to me that a, that a withdrawal from existence means doing exactly the opposite. It means avoiding the pure present by spending your time sequestered into yourself, preoccupied with your needs and desires and your past and your future. The Buddhist outlook, however, with its openness too, and its transparency with the world, well, this takes us as close to life as is possible. What it does is it reclaims and expands the present moment. And after all, that's the only place that real life exists. Right here, right now. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode 